Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Trisha and I are excited to share an exclusive episode on Health Gig from our 2020 Co-Mindfulness Virtual Summit. Our 2020 Co-Mindfulness Summit was packed with information from world-leading health and lifestyle experts. In this episode, we're excited to share Dr. Matt Dawson, who is the founder and CEO of Wild Health, and his fascinating presentation on brain optimization. Hi, I'm Matt Dawson. I'm a physician, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Wild Health. We're a genomics-based precision medicine company, and I'm going to talk to you today about brain optimization. I guess we should start with what is brain optimization, and specifically, what does that look like for you? We clearly know what the opposite of that is, and we see it all the time. I have patients all the time who have brain fatigue, anxiety, depression lots of problems with memory and thinking, and I even see it in my own family. Recently, I took a trip to California with my wife to visit her grandmother. We took our two oldest daughters to meet her, and it didn't go as we had planned at all. Her grandmother has Alzheimer's disease, has dementia, and she didn't recognize any of us. In fact, when we got there, she said words like, you're stupid, get out of my house, and some other things that we didn't really want our girls to hear. And we left with my wife in tears and devastated. This wasn't the beautiful lady who we had known before who was obsessed with playing golf and talking about the San Francisco 49ers. And we flew home to where my grandmother has Alzheimer's disease. My mother takes care of her, but most days my grandmother doesn't recognize my mother or know who she is. And I had my mother tested as well, and she has genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. It puts her at much greater risk. And it's not just the elderly, though. We're seeing this all the time. I have patients that come in in their 40s who have these issues, and many of you may have experienced a non-optimized brain. But it doesn't have to be this way. You can think better, be less anxious, happier, and basically perform better mentally at every task. It's completely possible. And it's not hard, but it's also not easy. It definitely takes some knowledge and a bit of work. Nothing that's important, especially as important as brain optimization, is going to be a quick and easy fix, but you can do it. It's not going to be an appeal. There's not going to be a magic bullet. And the first step to truly optimizing our brains is to stop thinking in terms of just the brain itself. We really have to take a holistic view of health in general and optimize the entire body and mind. We can't separate the mind and body. At Wild Health, that's what we do. The way we do this is by combining genomics. We sequence every patient's DNA and combine that with their blood work, their microbiome, and a long conversation to come up with what's the perfect plan to optimize your health and your brain. However, I don't have your DNA. I don't have your blood work or your microbiome data. So today, what I'm going to talk about are things proven by science to make the biggest difference when it comes to brain health. And just as a caveat, 
we normally with our patients come up with a six to 12 month plan. It's not a fast thing. We just had a two-day brain optimization conference where two days, that's all we talked about. And we're going to talk today for about 20 minutes or so. So I'm going to focus on just three areas specifically. I'm not going to talk about a lot of the super sexy topics like peptides, neurofeedback, plant medicine, things like that. Those things are really fun to talk about, but they really get you the last five to 10%. 90% of health and brain optimization comes from a real core set of basic things that we kind of already know about. And I'm probably not going to blow your mind with these things, but I feel like I would be doing you a disservice if we didn't really focus on the things that make a big difference, that science has proven make a big difference. So the first of those is fairly obvious, but we have to talk about it, is what you eat. It's a cliche to say you are what you eat, but you literally are. Every cell in your body is made up of what you put in your mouth and what you consume. So when we talk about how to eat optimally for your brain, it's a personalized thing. Every person should be on a different diet. Some of our patients are on closer to a carnivore diet, others more a vegan diet. It's going to be different for everyone depending on their genetics, their blood work, and everything else. But there are certain trends that we see. And when I talk to a patient about optimizing their food intake, I try to simplify it in terms of kryptonite food and superfoods. We're talking general terms, but we also want to be very specific. What things are really harmful to our brain and what things are really helpful to our brain? And we see over and over, there's a couple things that really are like kryptonite when it comes to brain function and thinking. The first one is gluten. I know there may be a little bit of fatigue around gluten sensitivity and gluten allergies, but it really is a big offender. A lot of cases of peripheral neuropathy are linked to gluten, and that's because gluten resembles some brain-relevant substances. And so what happens when you consume gluten is you form antibodies against gluten. And they've shown that when you remove those antibodies from human blood, they then attack cerebellar proteins. They misread as that gluten. And it attacks components of the myelin sheath that insulates nerves. And that's why it leads to peripheral neuropathy and brain issues. You really have an autoimmune brain damage when that happens. Gluten has been linked to higher levels of depression and anxiety. It's been linked to bipolar disease, schizophrenia, ADHD, migraines. Kids who have ADHD have shown improved school performance when gluten is eliminated. My own daughter would frequently vomit every day for a long time. It was pretty distressing to her and us. And once we completely removed gluten from her diet, she stopped. Now, I think anyone would probably benefit from eliminating gluten from their diet, but some people even more so. Even without a test for gluten sensitivity, if you have ran your 23andMe or Ancestry data, you can download your raw data file and look up and see if you have a unique polymorphism called SH2B3. A high percentage of our patients have that, and that makes you more sensitive to wheat and gluten. The other big kryptonite food that you're not going to be surprised about is sugar. We all know that sugar is bad for us, but it really is bad for your brain. They did a study out of the University of Southern California, and they found that if you consume high fructose corn syrup at levels similar to what we find in a sugary beverage, it can trigger immediate memory problems and brain inflammation. We've all heard about sugar and how it releases dopamine in the brain. We consume it, and it's addictive. When I see my family members at Christmas or Thanksgiving loading up on the desserts, those who may already have some brain disease or at risk for it, it really 
breaks my heart because I know what it's doing to really just set the brain on fire and increasing that brain inflammation. And if you just eliminated those two foods from your diet or took them down as much as you could, you'd go a long way in optimizing your brain function. It's one thing to talk about what to eliminate, but what should you add? What things are really going to be beneficial for your brain? The one that probably comes to your mind first, because it actually does have a big benefit, are fish, specifically the SMASH fish. So SMASH is an acronym that stands for sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. Now those fish specifically, because they're cleaner, they have less heavy metals than things like tuna, swordfish, some of the bigger predator fish. Sardines are fish that I love to talk about, and I consider it to kind of be the perfect food for your brain. We all know when eating animals that eating nose to tail is good, and this is a complete animal here that you're eating in a sardine. We also know that organ meat is very nutrient-dense, maybe one of the most nutrient-dense things we can eat, and the organs are still in there. And you've got all the little bones and the collagen protein. So you kind of get a bonus when it comes to hair, nail, and skin, if that's important to you as well. So if you could consume sardines, if you can tolerate that, that is probably the perfect food for your brain. Another food that I'll just mention as a real superfood for just about anyone is lion's mane. It's one of my favorite foods. If you haven't seen a picture, then whatever you're doing right now, pull out your phone, Google lion's mane, and take a look. It's a really incredible looking mushroom. It increases neurogenic growth factor. It's been studied in Parkinson's disease. A lot of people take lion's mane as a nootropic or a smart drug is what a nootropic means. And if you don't have access to fresh lion's mane, I have someone who actually delivers to me every week. They forage it in the forest and they grow some and cultivate it as well. But if you can't get that, there's some great companies that make lion's mane supplements. There's a really cool company called Four Sigmatic that has lion's mane coffee packets, some recommending frequently. It's a great kind of afternoon pick-me-up with less caffeine so you don't affect your sleep later. Now, the rest of what you should eat and shouldn't eat is really going to be personalized and driven by your genomics and your macro and micronutrient needs. And the best global advice when it comes to food is I, I really can't do any better than Michael Pollan in The Omnivore's Dilemma when he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Eat food should be unpacked a little bit. What that means is eat things that aren't chemicals and calories. Most of the foods we eat today, I don't consider food. They're chemicals and calories, a mixture of those two things. You could consider it food if your great-great-grandmother would recognize it. But if she wouldn't recognize it as food, it's probably chemicals and calories. We know what not too much means. And then mostly plants, I think, in general, is good advice as well. There are going to be religious debates all the time on carnivore versus keto versus vegan versus Mediterranean, and everybody is going to fall in a different place on that spectrum. And we have patients on carnivore diets and patients who are vegan and eat different things depending on their needs. But that simple advice by Michael Pollan, and if you're able to just eliminate those kryptonite foods of gluten and sugar and maybe add some more fish and more plants into your diet, you're going to be doing better than the vast majority of people and well on your way to an optimized brain. The second thing, which is core and fundamental, and I hope to give you a few practical tips around today, is again, not a surprise, but it's exercise. Like a lot of people think about exercise as something to look good and to lose weight with, but I really look at it as a brain optimization tool more than anything else. There was a recent study of over 400 adults where they looked at how much these older adults moved. And the ones that moved more scored better on memory and thinking tests 
And for every increased amount of physical activity at one standard deviation above, they found a 31% lower risk of dementia, which is really incredible. There's another study of adults as well looking at what if you don't even meet the activity guidelines? Even if you don't get to the guidelines that we set for movement that everyone should probably be getting, if there's just some light, intense physical activity, something like 7,500 steps a day or more, compared to sedentary individuals, those that are doing something have higher total brain volume. It actually affects the morphology and the shape of your brain. And it was equivalent to about one and a half to two years of less brain aging. So moving makes you younger. There's been a lot of studies comparing exercise to pharmacologic treatment as well, SSRIs specifically for anxiety and depression, how it affects mood. And in study after study, exercise performs as well or better than medication. Of course, there's side effects with any medication or even exercise. With exercise, we know you're going to have some side effects, things like better physical performance, looking better, losing weight, and just feeling better and younger. So if you're okay with those side effects, then Maybe we should be choosing our tennis shoes more than pills when it comes to affecting mood and depression and anxiety. And to be fair, it's usually not either or there. You should see your physician if those are things you struggle with. And a lot of times people need both. But if you're ignoring the exercise part, you're doing yourself a real disservice because it's a powerful intervention for thinking more clearly and having improved mood as well. Anxiety is such a big one that I see all the time. About a third of the U.S. has some issues with anxiety. I had a patient that came to me recently who was really struggling with anxiety, and he immediately wanted to talk about some of those things I mentioned earlier, neurofeedback, peptides. He had done a couple ketamine treatments for his anxiety. But after talking to him, I realized he had zero physical activity or exercise in his life. And I was able to convince him that this is really important. It was probably going to make the biggest difference for him. But it's difficult. He was busy. He was probably similar maybe to what you are. He would get up in the morning, go straight to work, work all day, come home exhausted, and go to bed. So we came up with some strategies. And I share this story because it's a very common one I see. And what we did with him is I had him just go get a kettlebell. That's easy. He got a kettlebell. He put it in his car. And when he would get up and go to his car in the morning, before he got in his car to go to work, he would do some goblet squats and kettlebell swings. You can Google those things and see a video if you don't know what those are. He'd drive to work. When he got there, he'd do another little set of them. He'd take the kettlebell in, and every hour he set a timer on his clock, on his phone. And when it went off, he'd stand up and do those. Not enough to get sweaty or to smell bad by the end of his work day but really just exercise snacks throughout the day. There's been really good evidence on that exercise snacking and the benefits of it. And when I saw him back a month later, his anxiety was completely better. It doesn't always work that well, but frequently it does in study after study. And he still wanted to talk about neurofeedback and peptides and plant medicine and things like that, but he didn't want to talk about those things in terms of how to fix this problem that had been bothering for years. He wanted to talk about those things in terms of, hey, I'm at a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, and I want to go to an 11 now. And that's a really fun conversation to have. So what should you do? What kind of exercises are going to make the biggest difference? The most important thing is that you do what you enjoy and that you're going to continue to do. If you love walking your dog or walking with your partner, do that. That's fine. You really should, if you want to maximize your brain function, though, get really out of breath at least a couple times a week. There's something called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is really important for your brain and learning and plasticity. 
and it dramatically increases when you do high-intensity interval training or you just get really out of breath. So the most important thing is to do what you enjoy. You're made to move. But if you really want the most potent medicine when it comes to exercise, you need to get to the point where you can't carry on a conversation and you're breathing about as fast as you can, at least a couple times a week. And that may be with the kettlebells, like I mentioned. It may be just walking up a really steep hill or doing some stairs. It's going to be different for everyone. But if you can do that a couple times a week, it's really going to make a big difference in your brain function. There's studies showing that just those exercise snacks or that activity leads to increased brain function for two to three hours afterwards. And that's why I had the patient I mentioned earlier do it every hour. Then he had this optimized brain state throughout the day with much less fog and just not clear thinking. Now, the last component that I want to talk about is sleep and mindfulness. Sleep is probably the biggest lever that I have to pull when optimizing health and brain function. Now, I combine sleep and mindfulness here because one time someone told me or I read that during a talk, no one's going to remember more than three things. And I've already talked about food and exercise. I only have one left. So I'm kind of cheating and combining the two. But the Dalai Lama says that sleep is the best meditation. So I'm going to trust the Dalai Lama and I feel like I can combine these two into one. And there is a real epidemic of sleep problems in our society today. Very few people have optimal sleep. Again, we have patients coming to us all the time. I recently had a professional athlete come to me, somebody who plays in the NBA, and he came because he had a lot of anxiety. And he thought it was related to the stress of his job. He had a high-stress job. But when we talked to him more, he was getting like two to three hours of sleep a night. And I was shocked he wasn't in worse shape than he was. And I told him about a study, trying to motivate him a little bit. It was a really cool study out of Stanford University where they took the varsity basketball players, they randomized them into two groups. One group was, hey, you just sleep like a regular college student sleeps. And the other group, they had them get a very specific amount of sleep. That was their intervention group. And what they found was the group that got more sleep had a 9% increase in their free throw shooting percentage, a 9% increase in their three-point shooting percentage, a 7% improvement in their sprint speed, and improved mental well-being, less anxiety and depression as well. So this player was very motivated by the shooting percentages and the speed. And when he did start sleeping more, his anxiety did get much better. And this is a max contract NBA player where this really matters. And I was shocked that no one had talked to him about this and these benefits. And I'm shocked that as a society, we don't talk about these benefits anymore as well. It truly is, I think, probably the number one thing where we can make the biggest improvement. And the reason is because of what sleep does to your brain. Sleep is basically like a washing machine for your brain. All the toxins that accumulate overnight get washed out through the glymphatic system at night. And what we've found is that if you don't get adequate sleep, it can lead to permanent brain damage. In one study, losing just one night of sleep led to increased beta amyloid, which is a protein in the brain associated with Alzheimer's. And there are lots of things that lead to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. It's obviously very multifactorial, but personally, I believe that sleep may be the biggest risk factor. Not just old people, though. There was a study of high schoolers, and it showed that those who were sleep-deprived had poorer grades, worse moods, and just anxiety and depression as well. So how do we get better sleep? Well, you manage what you measure. And so I strongly recommend getting a sleep tracking device. There are a lot of them out there and start 
measuring and actually experimenting. I wear an aura ring. I just took this off of my finger. It's maybe my favorite possession I have. Every morning when I wake up, I see my entire sleep architecture, how much sleep I got that night, how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep. And I can actually do experiments and see what works for me. Because we're a genomics-based precision medicine company, when I started to try to optimize my sleep, I looked at my genetics and I had an FAAH SNP. So because of this SNP, I thought I probably would benefit from CBD for sleep, and I did. I had a big improvement. I started out getting 15 minutes of deep sleep a night when I first got my aura ring. Now I get over an hour and a half. The other thing that made a big difference for me was a device called the Chili Pad, something that goes underneath your sheets on your bed. It circulates cool water and keeps you cool at night. This made a big difference for me. And there were other things that didn't help. Melatonin and a lot of other molecules or other things that help some people made no difference for me. But the point was that I was measuring it and I was able to see objectively what things are going to make a big difference and which ones aren't. If you're not measuring, it's really difficult. Now, if you want general advice around sleep, the way I ask people to think about this is think ancestrally. Think about a caveman or a cavewoman sleeping in a cave. You want it dark, very dark. You want it cool. You want it quiet. Or if not quiet, maybe some white noise like a stream that would be running through the cave. And you want to go to bed when the sun goes down and get up when the sun comes up. That's the optimal way to sleep. And we're not going to sleep in a cave. We're not going to do that perfectly. But the more you can do similar to that, the better off you're going to be. And then if you want to try some of the hacks and some of the other more fancy things, because we live in an artificial society, then get a sleep tracking device, track it, and see what works for you. Mindfulness, I mentioned, and it can have an amazing impact. In Wild Health, we have a specific three-month track where we really put people in and get them to focus on mindfulness and take advantage of its incredible power. I'm not going to talk a lot about mindfulness because the organizers of this course are the real experts in this. The Co-Mindfulness Project is a great project and a great way to approach mindfulness if you haven't before. But we know that mindfulness is really powerful and it can truly change the brain. We know that it lowers cortisol levels lower stress and decreases risk of disease that arises from stress, things like psychiatric disorders, peptic ulcers, migraines, and it actually changes the shape of the brain. There's a physician, Dr. Lazar from Harvard, who 15 years ago started looking at people's brains with MRI, and he found that long-time meditators, when he compared their brains to a control group, there was a measurable difference in cortical thickness in the regions of the brain associated with sensory, cognitive, and emotional processing. They also found that those long-time meditators had slowed age-related cortical thinning of the frontal cortex. So your brain ages more slowly if you meditate and have a mindfulness practice. Now, it's too late for you to be a long-time meditator if you've never started, but the same physician, their same group, did a study where they put people through an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, just eight weeks. And they found after that eight weeks of consistent mindfulness practice, that was enough to change the gray matter concentration in regions of the brain involved in learning and memory, emotion regulation, and perspective taking. They all changed positively. So we know that mindfulness enhances emotional recovery. It's been proven to have an antidepressant effect. Mindfulness manipulations lead to reduce negative emotional responses, enhanced positive emotional responses, decreases in emotional regulation difficulties. And there's multiple studies showing that it improves things like pain, high blood pressure, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and even smoking 
cessation. So if I were to tell you there was one intervention or a pill or something that could change all of those things, you'd have a hard time believing me. But study after study has shown this with mindfulness. And those that meditate fall asleep sooner and stay asleep longer. We've already talked about the benefits of sleep. There's one other study that showed after meditating for six to nine months, those that were prone to anxiety, two-thirds of those reduced their anxiety levels. So mindfulness is a really important part of optimizing brain function. So to kind of start summarizing things in general, Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad. Thinking makes it so. So every experience you have in life is shaped by your mind. So optimizing that brain and mind pays off in every single aspect of your life and the entire experience of your life. But you have to take a holistic view. I've been asked before many times, what is the one most important component to brain optimization? And I think that's kind of like being asked, what is the most important color that makes that Picasso painting beautiful? It's not one, obviously. You can't name just one. It's all of them working together in a symphony. And it's the same way with your health and brain optimization. Focusing on those three areas I mentioned, though, that we talked about will get you, I think, probably 90% of the way there. And if you want to dig in further on each of those topics, I have some recommendations for you to really go deeper. For sleep, if you want to focus on that, which you should, I recommend Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. I think that's the best book written on sleep and the science of sleep. If you want to learn more about food, there are so many great books written on food. But if you want to specifically learn about foods for brain optimization, I frequently recommend Dale Bredesen's book, The End of Alzheimer's. He's a great template for a good brain optimization diet. And if you want to learn more about exercise and its effects on the brain, then I would recommend the book Spark. Now, I mentioned that we had a two-day brain optimization summit. We're releasing all of those talks for free on our podcast, the Wild Health Podcast. You can hear all of those if you just want to hear more about some of the sexy topics I mentioned earlier, like peptides and neurofeedback, plant medicines, and things like that. If you want to more, learn more about wild health in general, you can go to wildhealth.com. So I started with a question. And as a physician, frequently people look to me for answers, not questions. But I think a lot of times the best thing I can do is actually ask a good question. So I want to end with a question. And that question is just why? Why do you specifically want to optimize your brain? It's a good place to start. Before you start diving in and pursuing that goal, I think it may be important to consider what Abraham Maslow said when he said, musicians make music, artists paint, poets must write if they are ultimately to be at peace with themselves. What humans can be, they must be. So my question to you is, what must you be? Once you know that, then I think doing the hard things to achieve truly optimal health of both your brain and body gets a lot easier, and it matters. So I want to thank you for your attention, and I wish you all the luck in the world at optimizing your brain and keeping it that way for as long as possible. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.